Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network, a station dedicated to the concept that all manifestations of the divine are equally valid. Join Reverend Terry Power HP, Robin McKean, and all the hosts for programming covering a wide range of spiritual topics, right here on Blog Talk Radio. of Olympus. I am Hercules Invictus, and tonight's show, we have some awesome people with awesome information that could help you on your life path. Our first guest for tonight is Michael Del Russi of Bold Spirits Holistic Concepts, and he will be sharing with us his information on mythic fitness. Greetings and welcome, Michael. How are you? Hello, Michael. Yes, I'm here. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. It's great to be with you and the family once again. Yes, it most certainly is. I've been looking through your book, Creative Health Manual, Age-Proofing the Skin and Body, and uh, I can't wait to try uh, these uh, different uh, techniques. Well, you know, we feel here, you know, we our calling has been twofold. One is to uh, explore the curious uh, avenues of the bicameral mind, as I know you've also been a student. Yes. Uh, the chambered mind, how to get a logical mind and create a spiritual mind to work in unison to better our lives. And uh, I believe when that happens, uh, new insights and better decision-making can lie ahead in just about every area of our lives. Uh, I think that the answers, you know, we have many sciences exploring man and his meanings. And I think um, exploring the bicameral mind and putting the bicameral mind to work uh, answers a lot of those questions, whether it be the questions that are 
uh, sort of by sociology, uh, psychology, uh, whatever the case might be. I think exploring the nature of man, a lot of the questions we have can be somewhat answered when we learn the bicameral mind. And I think that's also true in terms of aging and disease-fighting uh, uh, theories and concepts. So I think it's a, a great place to apply uh, bicameral thinking. I agree so, with you. Yes, I, and I, I think uh, uh, anti-aging researchers have been doing this for a while and been coming up with some very, uh, very interesting ideas in how to fight disease and simply keep us healthier through natural means. Indeed. So how can we go about uh, approaching this particular journey? Last time I read something I'd written about uh, finding myself at that particular point in life where that became important. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, your book certainly gives me uh, uh, an arsenal of uh, weapons <laughs> to try mm -hmm. in this particular uh, contest. Uh, so how did it come to you to uh, put this resource together? Well, uh, you know, it's been a calling of mine, actually, since I was 18 years old. Uh, okay. I remember watching uh, on TV Dr. Carlton Fredericks. Some of, uh, you may remember him. Yes. And uh, Adele Davis. These were early pioneers in terms of using natural substances to fight disease. I remember watching him early on a Saturday morning on some farming show which morphed into a holistic health program. And I'm probably going back to, well, the early 70s, uh, late 60s, actually. And he was, you know, he was one of the pioneers in the natural medicine and how to treat disease and prevent disease through mm -hmm. the, the, the uh, God-given uh, substances that we have here on earth today. And then uh, further down the line, I researched the career of Dr. Linus Pauling, who I'm sure you're familiar with, yes. and the Nobel Prize winner for his research in vitamin C. And he coined the term orthomolecular nutrition. What exactly does that mean? Uh, in his world, it meant supplying the body with enough natural substances through supplementation to prevent and fight disease. When you provide the body with maximum protection, and maximum nutrients, uh, disease can be held at bay. And, of course, he won a Nobel Prize for much of his research. So that's basically how it all began with me. And it was a passion, I believe, a, a, a spiritually-led passion that's always been with me. Uh, and it's something, it's, a, it's I consider it a ministry at this point, and just something I wanted to do. So I pursued my education in that and achieved the Bachelor's of Science in Holistic Nutrition and I just uh, love the opportunity to share with people the latest concepts, which they can take and run with uh, on right. their own. You know, and they can research on their own and move from there. You know, I'm, a, I'm a vegan 40 years, but I don't force my veganism on anyone. I simply say that was my calling. It's worked for me up to this point. And by all means, research, research other diets, see how they work for you. And I believe that's where the bicameral mind in each of us comes in and works. So, you know, I don't force my beliefs on anyone, but I love introducing uh, people to the latest concepts that they may not have been privy to otherwise. 
And you're doing a great job with that. Uh, and uh, you're a fascinating individual with a fascinating uh, life mission, uh, one that is of benefit uh, to all, even mm-hmm. if uh, you say it's only a starting point for their own explorations. Uh, mm-hmm. At least you're putting it out there, and uh, if somebody can benefit from it, uh, that is great. Right. Uh, and uh, I believe, and of course, it's, it's the calling of each of us. Uh, what I say in my manual, what I remind people in my manual, is that the, our DNA renews itself every two months. Our skin renews itself in one month, actually. Our livers renew themselves every six weeks. Our stomach lining rebuilds itself about every five days. Our brain rebuilds itself in one year. Our blood rebuilds itself in four months. Our bones rebuild themselves in three months. So the concept is, of course, if we supply our bodies with the the life-giving nutrients that make them run, when cells in each of our endocrine uh, organs uh, are renewed, they're renewed more vigorously and healthier than they would have been otherwise. That's the concept. And from both a logical mind and creative mind, it makes perfect sense. So yes. when you supply yourself with the right antioxidants, vitamin A, vitamin C, uh, E, uh, the carotenoids, uh, um, selenium, zinc, all of these uh, immune stimulant nutrients, stimulating nutrients, it pretty much stands to reason that we have a good chance of being healthier longer. Yes. And so that, yes. Go ahead. Yes. So that's the basic concept behind orthomolecular nutrition. And, you know, there have been uh, conventional uh, scientists and uh, medical uh, 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 prognosticators, if you will, who have uh, not totally agreed with this, but studies, study after study after study, have proven otherwise to the point where, yes, at one point in his long-standing career, Dr. Linus Pauling was uh, awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine because there could be no longer any dispute that these nutrients can extend lives and fight diseases, chronic diseases specifically. Why do you think more people don't embrace uh, um, this approach instead of uh, doing things that may potentially be harmful uh, in order to reclaim uh, uh, their lost or uh, fading youth, that they do things that are dangerous rather than doing things that are healthy? Well, there's a couple of things. I mean, I think, unfortunately, many people would rather have their car, invest in having their car detailed or their bowling bag initialed or whatever than investing yeah. in, which, you know, uh, life-giving supplements, uh, which if you go to the right suppliers are not all that expensive. I think it's just that for the most part, even in this day and age with what we know, and we are exposed more to the importance of vitamins, minerals, and supplementation, but it's been slow going, especially in this country. It's been very slow going. I think the consciousness of people have yet to be inspired, if you will, by mainstream medicine in this area. You know, as an example, when it comes to cancer, there are no guarantees with cancer. But we know that there's some exciting natural supplements out there that may very well fight the disease and fight it effectively. But your traditional oncologist, unless he's holistically trained, still has very little knowledge of these uh, 
of these nutrients, these supplements. And so it's a slow-going process here in the States. Even now, with as much information as privy to us, we're more educated, certainly, we are, through information on the Internet and all about natural therapies, but it's still a slow-going process. When you go to the doctor, you go to your specialist, uh, you know, the... Uh, considering uh, taking into consideration that your condition may be dealt with through natural means is last on the list. <laughs> you know, it's still last on the list. The first, the, you know, the first recommendation is going to be uh, conventional and uh, uh, artificial medications, and I think that's part of the reason. It's uh, the mainstream influence on our consciousness, if you will. And for someone who is starting this particular path where life has brought them to this point and they have to uh, examine these uh, issues, how would you recommend they, they start? Well, I think the starting point is uh, to deal with the uh, uh, free radical uh, concept. Okay. Yeah. Well, we know free radicals, we know now the free radical uh, environment is one of the main areas for disease. And what is what are free radicals? Free radicals are basically when a, a, a cell loses a certain molecule. There's a rebel molecule in the cell through environmental uh, influence, and that that molecule invades other molecules and starts stealing from them. And as a result, a rancid environment takes place in the cellular landscape, if you will. And we know that what can prevent that are, are uh, uh, antioxidants like vitamin C, uh, vitamin A, zinc, garlic, um, all of these things. Selenium uh, uh, is so very important. Selenium and vitamin E uh, can prevent this from happening when taken on a regular basis. So I would tell anyone, start with the basic antioxidants, which are vitamin C, E, the carotenoids, zinc, uh, selenium, and uh, I would start off with the basic, a good, strong antioxidant formula. Uh, a proprietary blend is great, and then I would support that with uh, higher doses of vitamin C, basically. And one experiment that's used for many, many years, if you take an apple and you cut an apple and you leave it on the table overnight, the next day, within hours, that apple begins to turn brown. Turn around. Yeah. That's free radical attack taking place. Now, if you take that same apple and rub it and bite it in ascorbic acid powder, the next day the apple has remained fresh and untainted. So it's a very simple experiment, uh, but that right there tells you what goes on in the human body. <clears throat> and vitamin C uh, uh, is a very controversial topic, and I know that. Uh, uh, at times, there are cautions published, and at times, uh, uh, things like uh, natural vitamin C versus uh, uh, lab-created vitamin uh, C. Uh, what type of vitamin Cs uh, should people look for? And are the bioflavonoids important? Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think it, a natural vitamin C with the bioflavonoids uh, is the best way to go. The bioflavonoids are very important in protecting uh, vascular health and the microscopic uh, circulation in the body, so I think vitamin C with bioflavonoids, yes, is a is a good way to start, and that's usually uh, the advantage over synthetic vitamin C. 
Now, I have been experimenting uh, with a system of testing vitamins for myself. And in our last conversation, uh, it uh, made me start thinking maybe I need to modify my particular system. What I was doing is I would take a vitamin for a month. Uh, then mm-hmm. I'd stop taking it for a month, and I'd take it for a month and not uh, take it for a month and see what changes, if any, I experienced. Mm-hmm. Um, and some vitamins that was sufficient, mm-hmm. uh, like CLA with me, for instance. That works exceptionally well, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I prove it to myself a couple of times a year, and that's among my, you know, uh, go on, go off, because I don't like being too dependent on anything in particular. Um, mm-hmm. But... That might be too little a time uh, I gleaned from our last conversation, so maybe I should give something uh, a longer period of time. Would you recommend six weeks, two months? What would you recommend is enough time to give something a chance uh, to build up in my system and produce an effect? Oh, I would recommend a maximum of at least two months. Uh, Two months. Absolutely. The reality is sometimes from a physiological standpoint, we may not feel a difference. Yet we know if we're taking a quality supplement, a supplement that's you know uh, that we know is is effective and comes from a reliable source, it's still providing us with the protection we need. We we may not always feel it. As an example, I take I take niacin. I don't take the long uh, acting niacin. I take just pure niacin. Uh, I don't take time released. I think that can be dangerous if uh, used for extended period of time. And uh, most of the time, immediately, I say within 10 minutes, I'm flushed beet red. And that shows me, obviously, I'm experiencing a physiological effect. That niacin's definitely working. You know, my face is red, my hands are red, and niacin is very important for opening up the microcirculation and can reduce levels of cholesterol. Uh, So it's a vital nutrient. Now, some people don't like that feeling. I happen to like it. I think it's an interesting experience for the time that it lasts. But you may not always experience a physiological effect, but you know, based on your own personal research through creative and logical mind and the research that you have done, that these nutrients are doing you good. You know that your vitamin C every day, your vitamin E, your carotenoids, you know that they're providing you the maximum protection. So you may not always feel it physiologically, but you know... Uh, subconsciously that they're doing the job that they need to do. Now, as you know, I like uh, working with my brain and my spirit as much as I like uh, experimenting with things that will uh, be a benefit to me uh, physically. And uh, I've never experimented with the B vitamins in my dream work, uh, but I've read a couple of articles that uh, B vitamins taken in greater than recommended doses uh, will allow you to have uh, more vivid dreams, more dream recall, uh, more lucidity. Have you ever experimented with the B vitamins in in such a way? As a matter of fact, and I've noticed that there's more lucidity with high doses of B vitamins. And, uh, you know, the brain really thrives on the B complex. Uh, So, yes, I have noticed, I've also noticed the spirit of calmness. There's a spirit of calm that comes over me when the B vitamins, uh, niacin being one of them, uh, are taken in the right doses. And as we discussed last time, you know, everything is a matter of utilizing our own creative minds, especially when it comes to supplementation. Sometimes we have to experiment with the dosages. 
And, you know, you'll hear every so often, and this I find this a little bit annoying, on TV about the mainstream media will pick up on, oh, there's been a new uh, report on the dangers of taking too many vitamins. Then when they get into specifics, it's the same old stuff. Well, too much vitamin A and too much vitamin D can be harmful, be built up in the body. Well, we know it is for years. But overall, the entire history of nutritional supplementation proves that most vitamins are extremely safe as opposed to the drugs that are advertised on TV daily, and I'm sure you've you've seen them all, most of which have serious side effects. So I have to laugh when the mainstream media and mainstream medicine tries to climb on uh, the back of uh, nutritional supplementation and criticize when most most of the drugs you see advertised on TV right now are far more harmful than nutrition, nutritional supplementation could ever be. And they let you know that, too, with the side effects. They have to list them now and say them verbally. And some of the side effects are uh, horrendous and frightening. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> suicide, all sorts yeah. of things. Uh, as possible side effects to these medications. Yes. As lymphoma, I mean, as certain types of cancer, and you're supposed to sit there calmly and say, well, it sounds good to me. I'm going to run, the, run off to my nearest drugstore. And, right. You know, it's, 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 it's a, a dark humor, I guess, because the reality is, again, there's supplements out there uh, that can many times duplicate and even exceed the healing effects of our standard drugs and, and pharmaceuticals, and the mainstream media, when it, every now and then when they get a chance, tries to put these supplements down. And by no means am I telling the public, don't take your medicine. What I am saying is, do your research by all means at what some of, one of, so what some of these healing nutrients can do. And listen, over 40% of our drugs are or have a natural base anyway before yeah. they're contaminated with other things. I mean, aspirin. Aspirin is from white willow bark. A heart drug uh, by called digoxin is from an herb called foxglove. Quinine and morphine are from natural so, uh, sources. So you know, uh, uh, many of our drugs are gleaned from natural sources to begin with. <clears throat> And, uh, again, people tend to forget that. Um, yes, and they do. It's, all, it's all considered to be a fad, even though it's uh, been with humanity for a very long uh, time. Yes. Uh, what I'd like to do, if possible, is uh, share some late-breaking news on yes, some be- supplement. might be of interest uh, okay. to you and your listeners. Uh, there was a brand-new study on CoQ10 which reduces uh, muscle pain. As we know, statin drugs, and we're just talking about this, statin drugs are uh, prescribed to a patient to reduce cholesterol. But a double-blind study reported in the Medical Science Monitor found a reduction in mild to moderate muscle pain related to use of statin drugs when CoQ10 is also prescribed. Statins can be very dangerous even to the heart muscle because they deprive the heart muscle of CoQ10. There are cardiologists out there right now, fortunately, that are aware of this. And when they're prescribed a cholesterol-lowering medication, they also advise their patients to take CoQ10. So I thought that was a very interesting report. Uh, There's been another report on 
calcium, multi multinutrients and calcium, lowering colon cancer risks. And that's from a meta-analysis from the International Journal of Cancer that showed a strong correlation between taking, your, again, your antioxidants plus maximum levels of calcium. They have found a reduction in the reports of colon cancer in those study patients. Wow. Uh, another report that I find very exciting is with aspirin, and you may or may not have heard uh, aspirin has been shown to regress and perhaps even prevent certain forms of cancer, especially cancer of the prostate, uh, uh, colon, and breast cancer. And these findings have been uh, reported in the issue of cancer epidemiology. Uh, subjects receiving 325 milligrams of aspirin, there, were, there was a 40% decrease in these cancers over long periods. And uh, the, the work on aspirin I have found over the last year to be very interesting uh, because it seems that aspirin is, has the ability to lower inflammation. And perhaps in our next program we can talk about systemic inflammation and how that contributes to chronic disease because aspirin seems to be a real uh, a viable weapon against systemic inflammation. Of course, the thing with the caveat there is if you're suffering from ulcers or, or any kind of intestinal disturbance, you do have to be aware of that before using aspirin therapeutically. Wow, that is awesome. Uh, and the aspirin, does it have to be taken in the form of tablets or can be taken in terms like willow uh, uh, tea um, to um, you know, give you the 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 aspirin uh, naturally that way, or does it have to be through tablets? Your vitamin, your regular aspirin is absolutely fine. But if if, if you suffer any uh, intestinal disturbance, uh, enteric coated aspirin then would be preferable. But as long as you're not suffering from any serious ulcers or bleeding issues, aspirin can really really be a co-preventive in certain diseases. And I've been really excited about the multiple reports I've been reading about aspirin and cancer. I mean, it's been fascinating. And it's uh, it's not like a pain relievers generally like ibuprofen or naproxen. This would be uh, aspirin. Right. Aspirin seems to reduce inflammation, as do, as does ibuprofen, which is a little, which is more deleterious to the to the liver and kidneys. And a very quick report, you know, about five or six years ago, there were uh, um, uh, arthritis drugs that were uh -huh. shown to actually fight and re and reverse certain forms of cancer. The problem with these drugs is they were also affecting the heart and creating abnormalities in the heart. So they had to be, uh, there had to be a warning had to be placed, and they were called COX-2 inhibitors. COX-2 inhibitors have been prescribed to many arthritis patients. They've also discovered through that process that these things can fight cancer, but uh, they have some very deleterious effects on the heart, so they, the amounts and milligrams and all had to be drawn back. But now we find the same benefits can come from aspirin, so uh, with less side effects, of course. So that, I found that to be intriguing as well. 
Well, Michael, thank you. The half hour passed phenomenally uh, fast again, so we're going to work yes, on getting you a longer uh, platform. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to our next conversation. Uh, thank you for everything. Uh, your segment was very entertaining and informative and uh, thought-producing. And I know it's going to um, push me now to research all of these things, you know, look into them and to experiment for myself. So, again, thank you very much. Thank you for thank giving you me the opportunity. It's been great. And we'll talk again soon. Thank you, sir. Have a good night, you and the family. You too, sir. Uh, we're going to listen to Bone Post Orchestra Evolve, and then we'll be back with Ryan Foley.
Focusing on optimal wellness in the first half of our show. And our next guest is no stranger to our podcast, Ryan Foley of Fury and Strength. Greetings and welcome, Ryan. Thank you very much for having me back on. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, me too. And I'm very intrigued because uh, I'm experimenting now with uh, uh, high reps and uh, low reps, uh, heavyweight and lightweight. And uh, I'm excited to hear that you've developed a new system for combining them. Right. Okay. So, uh, yeah, uh, now the, I want to say uh, one of the last times that we talked, uh, I explained how one of the things that I'm attempting to do uh, is, is to get fairly lean. Or that, and isn't that the struggle that we're all trying to do is, is to try yes. to burn a little bit of that fat and not so much build as much, uh, uh, as, as much mass. And so it's very dependent upon what your goal is. You need to know what you, uh, what you want your goal to be and think about that very clearly before you start implementing the type of training. So, so that way you're making sure that you're implementing the correct type of training to achieve the look that you're trying to get. And so one of the reasons why I subscribe to bodybuilding being one of the, the optimal exercises that you can do is because uh, let, let's say uh, if you put two people uh, in identical body structure and you put them in two different regiments, uh, and one of them uh-huh. is strictly cardio-based and the other involves uh, weightlifting, uh, they have the, the, meta, the sport science, they have the evidence now that will prove that the person that's using the resistance training is going to develop more, um, uh, more results on a, on a quicker scale. And right. a part of that reason is because whenever you go through and you do uh, strictly cardio, uh, so let's say you get on there and you jump on the, um, uh, you jump on the treadmill. Uh, so once you get off that treadmill, the burn is now finished. And so whereas if you go through and you do weightlifting, your muscles are continuing to burn fat uh, after, long after the, the workout is over with. And they have statistically proven that the heavier that you lift, the longer that burn is going to take place. So even after you've taken your shower and your protein drink, as you're going throughout the day, you're going to continue to want to go through and burn fat. Uh, but right. at the same time, I, I want to go through and I'm, I'm trying to get leaner. So I'm doing uh, a routine that was more based around higher reps and a lower weight where the lifting is, is very much surgical. 
uh, it's, it's, it really concentrates on form. Well, so I was doing that for, uh, I want to say roughly about the first three months of the year, so the first 12 weeks. Uh, and then I decided, okay, maybe it's time to go through and, and shift your training because I'm a, I'm a big proponent of doing that, to go through and change your workout uh, about every three months just to kind of keep those muscles guessing. And so it could be doing different routines or it could be a different, uh, different rep structure. So I followed uh, Dr. Jim Stepani uh, on a lot of the social media, and he's uh, extremely well-versed when it comes to, to bodybuilding. And one of the things that he recommended is what, what he calls a five system. And in the five system, essentially, um, there's a, a lot of exercise that you can do that, that's called running the rack. Uh, and it's okay. where you have, you, have, you have all your dumbbells laid out. And so you're going to go through and let's say that you've had an arm day. Okay. So you've gone through and you've, you've done all your arm workouts and then you're looking for a good finisher to close out your, your reps. So what you'll do is you get the heaviest weight that you can handle and you're doing as many of those reps as you can. Then you set those weights down and you drop down by, uh, by five pounds. And then you just wash, rinse and repeat. So you're trying to get as many reps as possible uh, and then, so it's, it's funny, but if you actually go through and, and, and run the whole rack, so at, at my gym, the heaviest dumbbells that we have are only 50 pounds. Uh, so okay. I'll start from there and it's, it's just trying to get as many reps as possible. And so you go all the way down to, to five pounds. And so you look kind of ridiculous if, if someone were to just see, you know, the last half of your workout, cause you're sitting there straining and you're, and you're struggling just to lift these little simple 10 and, and five pound weights. And so running the rack is, is something you can do with a variety of, of different exercises, but it's often you know, used as, as a bit of a finisher to close out and say, okay, I'm, I'm done for the day, and then I'm going to be completely exhausted. So what Dr. Stepani was recommending is, is it, it's a similar style, but you're using a different technique in that you're going to start extremely low. Uh, so let's say, uh, so you, you pick out a, a set of weights that you're going to do it. And let's say we're going to do uh, dumbbell curls. You can do okay. this with any, uh, any, uh, exercise that requires dumbbells. But so what he recommends is, so the reason why it's called a five system is because, all right, so, so you pick up, say you've got a two 10 pound dumbbell and you're going to do five reps with your right arm and then move to five reps with your left arm. And so you can do them simultaneously if you want to, but again, I'm trying to get that fat burn going. Right. And so uh, by, alternating the, by alternating the arms, uh, you're, kind of, you're engaging the other uh, elements of your muscles uh, for a much longer time. So you start out with, let's say, so let's say you're starting with the 10 pounds. Uh, so you do five on your right, then you do five on your left, and then you immediately move up by five pounds and then you just repeat the process and so you keep that going all the way up to a point where say so in my case let's say i'm able to get up to the 50 pound dumbbells uh so you do five on each arm you set those down and this is with very uh you know very limited rest in between your in between your sets and so you're working your way all the way up the rack and then you're starting to work your way back down the rack and so by doing this, what you're actually doing, so you're moving up in, in weight, so you're causing your muscles to have to work harder, but yet you're also getting a substantial amount of reps in with, uh, with a single exercise. So by the time you're all said and done, you may have ended up doing 90 reps 
depending upon what's uh, depending upon what your what your fitness level is. So okay. by doing this, and so, so you're not just doing this, let's say, with the dumbbell curls, although that's, that's simply the easiest one for me to throw out here, and, and your listeners will know what we're talking about. But any exercise that you can do, you can do this as, as long as it requires dumbbells and it has uh, you know, a, a system where you can alternate your lifts. Because whenever you go through and you're working out, your, your body is going to generate that lactic acid, and you need time to dump that lactic acid out of your muscles. Lactic acid is a, is a fancy way of saying fatigue. Uh, that's, what, that's what runs you out of energy. So you're trying to get that lactic acid to dump out of your system. So while you're curling those, the weight with your right hand, you're letting that left, you're letting the lactic acid dump out of the, of the left side. And uh, another way that you can look at it is, so if you're imagining uh, your, your attention is almost like a spotlight if you go through and you're lifting with both the right and left arm simultaneously, you're cutting that spotlight in between two different areas where if you just say, okay, I'm just going to lift with my right arm, you can focus that spotlight and your mental attention all upon that right bicep. So to me, you're focusing on it a lot more, uh, you know, and, and so you're paying attention to your body a, a little bit uh, with, with more intense focus. So you can do this uh, for a variety of exercises. You can do, uh, you know, side raises and forward raises if you're if you're wanting to go through it and do your shoulders. And so using this same structure of of this five of this five system, I went ahead and incorporated that into my lat pull down. So there I'm working on a machine, but yet I'm only using it one handed. And so I'm going through it and doing a variety of of lat pull downs. And then just switch them back and forth uh, with a with a handled grip, and so it's that idea of okay, we're going to get a high number of reps, but we're going to break it up with a series of intervals of five, and by doing that, so you're elevating that that level of strength. And so I was doing uh, just simple uh, front raises. Uh, so uh, for your listeners, it's where you're going through and you're taking a, a dumbbell. And you've got it positioned in front of you. Uh, and if you were looking at me from the side, uh, it would be lifting the weight from, let's say, uh, uh, six o'clock to about nine o'clock. And then you just okay. and you're dropping it back down. So it's it's just it's a simple front raise, which it really targets that front uh, that front muscle of, of your deltoids whenever you're trying to go through and build up your shoulders. And so I'm going through and I'm lifting a series of weights and, and the fatigue is starting to get in and it's starting to get harder. And it's kind of one of those things where I didn't realize, and I, I, I try to say this with, with no bragging, uh, you know, uh, in, in, my, in my speech here, uh, but I didn't, th- I didn't realize how strong I was until I, until I started pushing myself beyond the envelope of what I thought was possible. So mentally, I said, there's no way. I can lift that amount of weight because the struggle is just too hard. My you know, the fatigue is building up. I can't get it done. Well, let's just see how many of these I can get. And so by going through and, and picking up those weights and really putting in the hard work, it was like, wow, I didn't realize how strong I was because mentally I had convinced myself, oh, there's no way I can get five reps with that 45-pound uh-huh. weight. But, but I'm going to go through and I'm, I'm going to try it anyway. And I was like, oh, wow, I was able to get five reps with those 45-pound uh, dumbbells. So I was you know, very excited about that. And then when the fatigue 
is really setting in, that's when you start working your way back down. And you go, okay, well, you know, hey, I was able to get five, you know, at this rate. So let's just, we'll drop the weight down, you know, by five more pounds. Uh, and then we'll continue to lift. And so by doing that, I feel like you're getting the best of both worlds in that you're slowly building up your system, uh, you know, so, so that way it's, it's, it's very important whenever you're first getting started uh, that uh, you need to go through and develop your, your tendons and your muscles. You need to educate them, hey, this is what we're wanting you to do. So it's okay to start off at a fairly you know, low weight because you're working on building the fundamentals. You're working on building your mechanics. And then as you begin to develop those mechanics, you're going to find yourself growing stronger. And so this is kind of the same way. I think you're less likely to get hurt uh, doing a, a series like this because you're slowly warming up. You're starting with those 10s and those 15s. Then once you start to move into that, that lower rack where the, the heavier weights are, you're slowly building yourself up into that. Then you reach that pinnacle and you say, okay, we reached that pinnacle. Now let's just start working our way back down by getting more and more of these reps. So by doing this, you're combining that heavy lifting. So you know you're going to get that good burn uh, and you know you're going to be working hard. You will build up a sweat doing this. I, I guarantee you that. Uh, and then you slowly start working your way back down. And then it's just a matter of, of getting creative because you can do this uh, with front raises and side raises and, and, and bent over uh, you know, raises to, to hit the, the, the back part of your deltoids. Uh, you can uh, do this with, uh, you know, with, with uh, trap raises. I mean, there's, there's so many different varieties. Anything where you're working with uh, a pair of dumbbells, you can incorporate this in. So whether it's your, your biceps, your triceps, uh, you know, all parts of your deltoids, uh, you can implement it with just about anything. And so this is what I've been experimenting with uh, for the last, oh, I'd say like a good month and a half now. Uh, just to kind of to, to feel it out and to see which is the superior system. And, and I think given the results that I've seen, uh, it, it, I do feel it is very, uh, it's very effective. And so that's, that's one of the reasons why I was happy to, to bring this to you today, to go, hey, you know, this is kind of something that I found. It started just with a simple, you know, three-minute video on YouTube where Dr. Stepani was laying out his, his five system. I took it and incorporated that into my routine and I've been very satisfied with the results. Oh, very awesome. It, it sounds like a pyramid and then a reverse pyramid um, with more, yeah, exactly. more steps rather than keeping it a narrow range, giving it a full range until you get exhausted. And then uh, again, going backwards, uh, how many sets do you wind up doing? Or do you, do you even bother counting the sets? Uh, usually it's one and done because it seems to me like I get fairly exhausted uh, just doing that that one set, okay. and then so then I'll move on to a different muscle group, but with the same with that same structure. And I mean, there's always going to be muscle groups that are going to be stronger than others. So yes. even though even though you've built up, I mean, uh, the biceps and the calves are the fastest recovering muscles in the body, and so as a result, you may find that you're able to do a lot more of those. Uh, and then you do want to have a certain amount of muscle symmetry, but I think you're going to find, for me anyway, uh, I find that my triceps are not quite as strong as my biceps are, so I need to work on getting them developed. So it's, but then I also have to calculate in, okay, I am you know, working myself almost here towards exhaustion, uh, which I'm not a tremendous fan of, uh, but so it's like, so that fatigue is going to set in and that's going to cost you for reps later on. So yeah, it's more along the lines of, 
I'm going to do this just for one for one set, uh, but then I'm going to move on to a different muscle structure. So it's uh, so like today I did biceps, uh, then I moved in and did uh, my lat pull downs in order to work my lats, and then did a, a variety of shoulder exercises. And by the time you get done doing all that. Yeah, you're pretty darn exhausted, and it's time for some cardio and some stretching, and then you call it a day. And how much recovery do you give yourself after those type of workouts uh, uh, before going to that body part again? Yeah, okay. So the, the, the science will tell you that it's 24 hours for every 100 pounds lifted. So if you were bench pressing 200 pounds, they would recommend taking 48 hours off uh, before you go into and, and training your, your chest again. This is part of the reason why I have moved to more of a uh, more of a lighter style workout where I'm not lifting much more beyond 100 pounds. So that way, uh, in realistically, I could go through and I could, tra- I could train my chest every day if I wanted to because it's more incorporating the lighter weight. So as a result, I don't have nearly as much downtime. And so I think that's, that's a more beneficial, you know, effect would be to go through and train uh, a body part every other day, if you could, or even every day if you needed to. So I have shifted to more of an all-over workout. Uh, okay. So my recovery time is, is not nearly as, uh, as intense as it used to be. Whenever I would go through and I would focus strictly on, on, a, on a single body part, where today is just going to be my chest and back, and that's all I'm going to do and that's all I'm going to work with, the soreness that would result from it. I mean, I'd have to take a, you know, a good couple of days off just to go through and let it rest. And so, but now I don't have nearly that much of an issue because I'm training all over for a smaller amount. But I think that this is an important, and that's, it's a fantastic question, by the way. And I think it's one that a lot of people will ask. And uh, I think this is the reason why I've, I'm a big believer of going to, let's say, 70%. Give me 70% with every workout because then if you do that, so let's say on Monday you go through and you give me 125% and then you're so exhausted that you can't make it into the gym on Tuesday. And so say it takes you a full day to go through and recover. Well, instead what I'm going to do is I'm going to go 70% in the gym, but the difference is that I'm going to be in there all five days. So if I'm in there Monday, Monday through Friday, but you get so exhausted that you can only be there on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. I got two more workouts in per week than you did. And over the course of a year, that's a hundred workouts. So if you look at it in that regard, I do believe that it is, it is volume. Volume is really the key. I think if you want to see traumatic results and I, we all have that, that uh, sitcom image of the girl who's uh, freaking out because her, oh, no, my high school reunion is, is next week. I've got to hurry up and lose a whole bunch of weight. So she's in there killing herself on the treadmill. And it just doesn't work that way. It's, it's a slow, incremental change over time. And so by doing that, it's volume training. So, therefore, I'm not lifting tremendously heavy. So that way, whenever it's time for me to go again, I absolutely can I think the, the lone exception for this uh, is legs, and that's just because I don't have the endurance needed in order to go through and do, uh, you know, 25 squats in a, in a set. So to me, I, w- I would much rather load up heavy uh, with my leg training 
and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and maximize. And so it's like, okay, we're doing legs today. Let's go through and, and get it banged out. We're going to make it hurt. But, so, but for that heavy lifting, I think for legs, that's, that's really the superior way to go. But for all other training, it's, it's all about volume. It's just in training as much as I can. So sticking with that 70% principle. I don't give every workout my all either because I, I like to work out. And if I could, I'd work out every day, all day. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, life, uh, you know, although it affords many luxuries, it doesn't afford me that one yet. But I work out whenever I can, whenever I have time during a day. And uh, I've learned that uh, you can, if you know how to um, hit your muscles against each other, you're not going to get as good a workout as you would with uh, weights. Uh, but you can get some of the benefit of weightlifting if you know how to do uh, isometrics and dynamic tension and isotonics. Uh, and if you know how to make something heavier uh, than it actually is in your mind. Um, so I've okay. been experimenting lately with taking uh, days off because everyone uh, uh, was recommending that to me. And I fought that you know, internally. Uh, but I found that now if I take uh, two days off during the course of the week, and uh, what do I actually look forward to my workouts? <laughs> yeah, so that day is like torture, you know, because I want to get back to the workout. So it actually fuels me. And I've noticed uh, some significant changes in my body, too, by uh, taking the two days off. But it took me a while of, like, doing half a day here and there, then doing, like, one day and fractions of the day uh, until I finally got to the point where... I could do the two days uh, off. And even then, I experiment with new exercises on those days because I have the time to do them because I'm not working out. But I miss, I, I right. love working out today. It's, uh, I'm the exact same way. Now, where I work out at, uh, I actually work out uh, uh, at, the, the, at a wellness center. It's not necessarily, it's, it, it is a gym, uh, but it's, it's more of a wellness center that's located inside a medical clinic. Uh, and okay. they're closed on the weekend. So I'm more or less forced uh, to take two days off during the week. And so, yeah, when, when Monday rolls back around, I'm ready to go. It's, uh, yeah, so I, there is something to be said for taking a, a little bit of that time off, letting your body sort of recover, you know, and, and then just uh, – and absence makes the heart grow fonder. And I, I think that's yeah. the difference. Uh, it's, it, yeah. And then there's also just that different mental aspect. I know there are a lot of people that, that you know, they, they can train at home or they may have a, a bow flex or something like that where they can go through and work out at home. And I think those are fantastic. I wish that I had the, the space and, uh, and the money to be able to afford one of those. But to me, there's just something about going to the gym. I, I think it, it'd be the same as if you worked at home or, or you know, if you worked at the office. I think there is a different mental energy that you bring to it whenever you know you're actually going somewhere and going to get stuff done. I think it, it drives my focus. It drives my intensity. And I also know that I'm on a, a time structure. Uh, here for, I would say, probably at least the last year and a half, I switched my workouts uh, to where I was working out in the morning as opposed to after work. And so I know I'm on a time crunch. I don't have a whole lot of time to lollygag and, and rest and right. recover. Uh, in between my sets because I've got to hurry up and get in the shower so that way I can make it to my nine-to-five job. So there's that sense of urgency that forces me in, and that I really like. So that way it's uh, – and there are sometimes where, you know, I'll, I'll go all out just to leave it all on the table uh, so that way I've got nothing left because I know, hey, I've got a shower and, I, and I've got to get on. 
So, yeah, I, I do think going to the gym is, is certainly uh, a superior method, or it's, it's nice to be able to, it'd be nice to be able to have both. But if I had to choose between working out at home or working out at the gym, I'm choosing the gym every time. And I can certainly understand that. I was a gym goer for very many years. Uh, the past decade, uh, I've been working out at home. And when we lived in Pennsylvania about half a decade ago, I actually, uh, by going to Goodwill, Salvation Armies, looking in the newspaper, going to garage sales, I built myself a really impressive gym in our basement with two benches, a squat rack, uh, a leg press machine, you know, uh, Olympic uh, weights and uh, regular weights. Uh, but, again, I don't have that right now. Uh, so I'm I'm trying to make the best uh, from what I have space-wise. But I've been visiting gyms uh, lately, too, because I finally conditioned myself to a point where, for safety reasons, I think I'm better uh, in a place where other people can spot me so I can really handle the heavy weights again. Sure. Yeah, no, I completely understand that. Yeah, and if you have someone – that can go and work out with you. That, that, um, th- that's fantastic because it helps, it helps both your motivation and their motivation. Yes. Uh, but at the same time for, for me, it's difficult to find someone that's going to be at my fitness level and has my same schedule and has the same intensity that I do. And so that's where it's just one of those things where unfortunately I, I work out by myself, but I mean, I prefer it that way just so that way I can do you know what I need to do when I need to do it. But, yeah, to, ha- to have someone to work out with me, yeah, th- that'd be ideal. And I'm kind of hoping that here uh, fairly soon that's where my sons will, will come in and they'll start working out with me and we'll, we'll work together as a family. That, that is incredibly awesome. I, my, my son used to come with me when he was tiny, uh, and he used to sit on the leg press machine when I maxed the weights out. Uh, and then he right. got into bodybuilding as an adult, uh, too. Uh, so uh, we swapped these stories. But for years, he used to come with me when I used to work out. And I used to show him how to do exercises. And that, that is one of the most precious memories uh, you, know, you can have. So uh, I'm happy for you. I, well, I completely understand your, your feelings behind that. And so it's kind of one of those things where if you can start them early. Uh, again, I, I personally think that, that uh, bodybuilding is, is absolutely fantastic. I wish they taught it in high schools as a, as a legitimate sport, uh, just because of, and and for for both boys and girls, I I think uh, that resistance training is really it's it's good for you, not just physically, but for uh, but mentally and emotionally. I think uh, it's definitely this journey that I've been on for the last five years, I've improved so much emotionally. I think I've improved more emotionally by lifting weights than I have physically. I mean, physically, that's, that's the part that everyone can see, but that emotional center, that's, that's where I'm happy. That's where I'm, I'm building my confidence back. And so if I could take that and somehow bottle it and give it to other people, I wouldn't heartbeat. Well, how about if we make that the topic of our next show? Because uh, I use the bodybuilding for the same reason. It's a meditation almost, uh, sometimes a dangerous meditation because you can hurt yourself, but it gives you excellent focus. Uh, like nothing else will. Uh, and how about we talk about that next time? Yeah, that sounds great to me. Ryan, thank you so much again. You're an inspiring individual. I love talking to you. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm reading your graphic novels again for inspiration. So I'll be posting that on Good. Facebook. It's my inspirations for the day. Uh, thank you for uh, all the knowledge uh, that you've shared today. And I'm going to experiment uh, with a system that you shared as well. And next time I'll let you know how it went. Okay, that sounds great. Okay, have a great night and talk to you soon. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. My pleasure. 
Uh, we're going to listen to Bone Punks Orchestra's Evolve, and then we'll be back with Ron Carson's Coliseum. Thank you. 
Greetings and welcome back to Voice of Olympus. I am your host, Hercules Invictus, and our next segment will take us into Ron Carson's Coliseum with radio personality Ron Carson. Greetings and welcome. How are you, cuz? Good evening, Cousin Hercules. Uh, I'm good. Thank you very much for uh, asking, and uh, I'm glad to be back for another installment of Ron Carson's Coliseum, as we are going to talk about a really classic couple of movies tonight. I mean, this Yes, I could, I could barely wait. <laughs> the crown jewel of 20th century uh, sword and sandal pictures. I mean, we're about to delve into it for the next half hour, my brother. That is fantastic. Are you ready? And, oh, I'm ready. Go ahead. Today we're going to focus on Spartacus, the Thracian gladiator who was one of the escaped slave leaders in the Third Servile War, which was a major slave uprising against the Roman Republic many, many moons ago. And, of course, uh-huh. in our native language... He is known as Spartacus. Yes. And it's amazing how this film really, really picked up some of the best performers in show business to uh, assemble together to make this a movie that had hit written with a capital H. Of course, Kirk Douglas in the starring role, who is still with us, at age 101. That's amazing. Can you believe that? That is truly amazing. I mean, he has cracked the century mark, and by looking at pictures of him on Facebook, he still holds up very, very well. May God bless him each and every day. That's all I could say. But uh, he was fantastic in this title role without a doubt over here. And the picture also starts Sir Lawrence Olivier, Gene Simmons, Charles Lawton, Peter Ustinov, who picked up an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor as the slave trader Lentulus in this movie. Also, John Gavin with an excellent portrayal of Julius Caesar. And Tony Curtis, in many ways, stole this film as well towards the end, too. Yes, he did. Absolutely. Some of the supporting members in this film included Nina Foch, John Ireland, Herbert Lom, who, if you remember, played Phantom of the Opera in, in the movies back in our time. And yes. Joanna Barnes and Harold J. Stone also were uh, supporting cast members of the uh, movie. And uh, Spartacus takes place in the first century B.C. as director Stanley Kubrick, who, of course, is best known for horror films, actually was in control of this particular motion picture. And they also say that it's one of Kubrick's best also. I mean, the running time in this movie is over three hours, but it's worth every minute to watch this every over second, and yeah. over again. And it's a must-collector collection for all sword and sandal uh, enthusiasts like us. I mean, this is a pinnacle of a picture. And without a doubt, Kirk Douglas just shines brightly in this uh, title role. And um, what happens was that he is sentenced to death because he rebels in his position as a slave. And mm-hmm. he's uh, actually bought by the character played by Peter Ustinov, 
where he instructs a trainer named Marcellus to not overdo his pretty much in his baptism of fire because he has quality and he has redeeming moments. And mm-hmm. this is all the struggle of Spartacus trying to get himself acclimated to this new role that he has in life. I mean, there's a lot of excellent gladiator fight scenes throughout the yes, film. You know, if you remember on Peplum movies, you know, the they would fight in the Colosseum, no pun intended. You know what I mean? Because right. we call this feature Ron Carson's Colosseum. But a lot of the um, moments in the pictures show, you know, gladiators fighting to the death. In right. order to keep themselves uh, alive, and there's quite a lot of that in this particular picture too, if you recall. I know you're a fan of this uh, movie also, Hercules, because whenever Channel Nine or whatever peak station used to run it, we used to stick used with to it, commercials it. included, and it was a four-hour it was a four-hour movie when you watched it on regular television. Yeah, I remember uh, sitting mesmerized uh, by the black and white uh, TV long before we had color, uh, watching these movies uh, play out. And uh, because uh, they're they're talking about our heritage and uh, we grew up with those stories yes. as well, uh, they brought all the ancient tales uh, to life and, gr- and strengthened uh, uh, the bond with uh, uh, the stories of our ancestors. So it was always a special uh, and Spartacus uh, was uh, a classic. It was very well done. Uh, it wasn't a yes, low-budget yes. uh, production, so uh, it, it especially stood out. The, the stars were stellar quality, uh, forgive the pun, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it was phenomenally uh, well-written uh, and directed, and uh, uh, the costuming was excellent, so there was nothing not to like about the movie. Uh, no, there was nothing negative about this particular picture. And you were talking about uh, making money. They had a $12 million budget for this, which back in wow. the early 60s was a lot of money. Yes. It grossed $60 million nationwide and worldwide in theaters. So it made five times the budget. So that tells that you something awesome. right there. Uh, yes, it certainly uh, does. And it's a story that uh, was based on a uh, Harold or Howard, I don't remember, fast uh, novel, if I remember correctly. I've read the book uh, numerous times. And, yes, uh, the book was written uh, by Dalton Trumbo, if you remember. Okay, I thought it was He uh, was fast the author of Spartacus. And if you remember, he also wrote the uh, war novel, Johnny Got His Gun, which we read in school, I remember, in parochial yes. school, in Mr. Hostetter's class. Yes. That was Dalton Trumbo, the same gentleman who wrote Spartacus. I stand corrected. Um, And the movie's been made over many times, including uh, a cartoon um, that uh, starred Charlton Heston's voice as Spartacus again. You reprised the role, uh, but in a cartoon uh, uh, not that long ago. Correct. Correct. Because, you know, it still maintains a legacy. And like I said, it was done by a gentleman who was more familiar with, you know, horror films. Stanley Kubrick did a lot of pictures that dealt with mystery and horror. And, you know, he was the one responsible for giving us The Shining with Jack Nicholson, if you remember. You would never think that he was the man behind 
the camera for Spartacus. And his directorial uh, efforts definitely were well-received and well-mentioned you know, throughout the cinema nation, worldwide, for sure. And the performance of uh, Kirk uh, Douglas uh, yes. was especially uh, powerful, memorable. Just like for many people, Steve Reeves is the Hercules in the cinema. Uh, for many people, myself included, uh, Kirk Douglas is the Spartacus. So even though I've enjoyed that other renditions of Spartacus, he was like, uh, like Charlton Heston is the Moses. <laughs> right. And that was his, you know, particular role in the sword and sandal genre. As you remember, um, parts of the movie was that he was elected chief of the fugitives and he was elected to lead everybody, the slaves I'm talking about, out of Italy as they yeah. were also pillaging and plundering so they can get some money to get to where they were supposed to go. Um, they meet up with Tony Curtis throughout the middle of the film, if you remember, as he played the entertainer, Antoninus, and I think he also had a way of stealing the picture as well. Mm-hmm, yes. And, and Spartacus been... also provided excellent leadership towards the people that he wanted to liberate. And pretty much he had a following. And eventually he defeated the multiple armies that were sent against him by the Roman Senate. And that's where you also see John Gavin as a young senator by the name of Julius Caesar. Yes. We actually get to meet Julius Caesar in this particular film as well. In the televised version of Spartacus, which was also very well uh, done, uh, despite the yes. fact that uh, the uh, the primary actor unfortunately died, uh, um, it, they introduced Julius Caesar as well, and there was talk for a while of Julius Caesar spinning out into his own TV show, but unfortunately that did not happen. No. No, it didn't, unfortunately. I mean, the climax was, you know, when Kirk Douglas yelled the two famous words, I am Spartacus. Yes, and, and everybody else. Every one of his followers also, you know, continued the chant, so to speak, yes. before they were all captured towards the end. And ironically, he was sentenced to die the same way as Christ was, by crucifixion. Yes. And that whole final scene in the movie is, you know, Spartacus on the cross, near death, as his followers and his family come over one last time to see him. Probably one of the saddest parts of a Peplum movie that I've ever seen in my entire life. But Kirk Douglas, that was his role. He owned it. In more ways than one. Why he and there, didn't win an Oscar for this is still beyond me, you know? Probably for the same reason many many other actors in very popular uh, movies don't win uh, uh, awards. There's like a snob well, like value. Said, Peter, Ustinov, Peter Ustinov picked up a statuette for his supporting role as the slave uh, driver in the uh, movie by the name of Batiatis. I don't know if I pronounced that right. Yes, but yeah. Okay, thank you. Thank you for uh, clarifying over here. Okay. But um, like I said, if you remember, you know, you and I are Monty Python fans too. Don't forget. Of course. 
And do you remember a scene in Life of Brian where they actually parody the scene from Spartacus? Were they singing on the crosses or? Yes. I know that yes. they... during the crucifixion yeah. scene. Yes. 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 That was a parody from that movie. And, you know, they always had no holds barred when it came to uh, picking up this uh, sort of humor, if you get my drift, you know? Yes. So, yeah. I bet you didn't know that seven years after its original release, it was back in theaters, but about 25 minutes of the original film was not included. That and then they re-released it. They re-released it back in the early 90s, and they restored that missing footage. And they added another 15 minutes that was actually edited from the film before the original came out to print. Yes, I remember the controversial footage and the the edited version and then the uh, complete versions. Correct. Correct. And ironically they had to redub the restored version of the movie. And by that time, Sir Lawrence Olivier passed away. Uh, Kirk Douglas, Tony Curtis were able to do their roles without a problem. And Anthony Hopkins was the voice of Crassus. That was the character Ah. Olivia played in the movie. And they were all not together. They actually recorded the dialogue on a separate basis, and they got edited all together during the final re-release. re-release. Now, that is awesome. I'm I did gonna, not know that. Well, you know, that's why I do my research, and that's why I'm telling you, uh, you know, the accents and the highlights of this particular picture, which, for, for, for starters, like I said, is probably one of the top five couple of movies of all time, and I'm sure, you know, our friends Nick Whale and Stephen Smith would agree with us in this one for sure. And speaking about Nick and uh, Stephen and the other folks in Temple of uh, uh, Paradise, uh, today when you yes. finish with Spartacus Review, I'd like to start exploring some of the other groups, starting with Nick's Women of Temple movies. Uh, which uh, oh, I visited oh. today. I've been a member for a long time. You're a member, and uh, several yeah. of the people yeah. associated with the show are members of that as well. So uh, when you're done with Spartacus, uh, our journey will take us there. That would be nice. Would be uh, nice. It's an adventure I definitely want to take a look at because so many lovely ladies grace the silver screen in this particular genre of movies, and you know that by now. Yes, of course. Um, I'm going to kind of also add another sidebar to this, okay? Okay, sure. Did you know who hailed Spartacus as a hero and called him, quote, I quote Wikipedia on this, okay? Word for word. The most splendid fellow in the whole of ancient history, unquote, and a great general, real representative of the ancient proletariat. That should tell you that it's a Russian general. Can you guess who that is? No, tell me. He's author Karl Marx. Okay, that that was my first guess, but uh, I wasn't sure. So, okay, great. But Karl you Marx the... idolized Spartacus. Actually, based some of his works on his on this character as well. And did you know that uh, an uprising in uh, communism back in Russia? This was in 1919. They called it the Spartacus Uprising. And also, 
There's a bookstore named Spartacus Books, which is named in the character's honor as well. So this movie resonates in more ways than one. Yes, it does. And it will continue to resonate because it's a powerful movie with a powerful message. Absolutely. 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 Because, like I said, he was a strider of freedom, Spartacus. And he wanted to make sure that all the people that followed him in his journey were not going to be slaves for the rest of their lives. That they were going to be very, very, uh, you know, adamant about enjoying the uh, the right of freedom, which was very, very difficult to get in the old days and uh, before, you know, in, in the days before Christ. And even now, we're, we're a lot of uh, the narrative now is that uh, globally people are losing their freedoms and uh, mm-hmm. that uh, there's an imbalance in uh, uh, financial power where there's a very a small, but very rich elite. And then there's uh, various mm-hmm. degrees mm-hmm. of people who are still uh, struggling. So the uh, yes. legend Articus continues to uh, inspire because uh, Rome was thought to be unbeatable. Uh, and here was mm-hmm. uh, a man who was a slave with a bunch of other slaves. Uh, and they managed to defy Rome for a very long uh, time. Right. I agree with you on that. Did you know that at first, Kirk Douglas was supposed to play the role of Ben-Hur, but William Wyler instead chose Charlton Heston, and that pretty much disappointed Kirk Douglas. Oh, you did know that? Yes, that I did know. And eventually, uh, that's why they developed Spartacus, because they thought that he was going to be just perfect for this role. And it says it all. Exactly. It was... Without a doubt, uh, Taylor, a role that was tailor-made for him, and I don't think any other actor would be able to uh, duplicate what he did on the silver screen with this picture, for sure. Oh, Are you in so agreement so. with that? I, I'm in agreement. and uh, I, I'm sure you are, because like I said, the uh, movie also got, uh, you know, pretty uh, good reviews. But there was still some, you know, ups and downs. Some of the critics really uh, delved uh, a little too much into the uh, screenplay. And then eventually what happened was that, uh, you know, they did recognize Kubrick as being true to the realm of the history where this picture actually came from. Right. But um, it, it's amazing. Um the uh, the film did get Oscars, including Peter Ustinov for Best Supporting Actor, uh, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, and Best Cinematography. Kubrick did not win an Oscar for Best Director, and neither did Kirk Douglas for Best Actor, who was he was also nominated in the, in, for the Academy Awards, and and it still saddens me and. Uh, Lawrence Olivier also was nominated and did not receive an Oscar for it either. It's amazing. Wow. So the Academy the Academy still had a lot to uh, be desired back then even, you know? 
most certainly sorry. I learned a lot uh, about Spartacus that I did not know today. So thank you very much for uh, expanding my uh, knowledge base. And uh, um, we still have six minutes, so I'd like to get into the um, other realms of peplum that Nick Whale and Stephen Smith have uh, brought to us. And uh, there's oh, one of oh, oh, women of peplum movies. And, uh, yes. It, it looks like a cheesecake type of, uh, you know, because of the pictures the studios made uh, from the movies, but mm-hmm. it's actually a very respectful uh, uh, site as is Peplum Paradise, and they celebrate the women of the Peplum movies. Uh, in Peplum mm-hmm. Paradise, they celebrate everybody who's in a Peplum yeah. movie, no matter how large or small their role. Um, but women of Peplum movies focus on the women and gives a lot more information uh, that you get uh, in Peplum Paradise sometimes. So uh, I, I find it to be a very uh, a pleasant place to visit every time, every now and again. Unfortunately, my schedule doesn't allow me to uh, explore and visit as much as I used to, uh, but it's still mm-hmm. a guilty pleasure uh, exploring the different Peplum sites and what people you know, had to say and what people had to share. Oh, absolutely. Like I said, Nick and Steve do a phenomenal job in keeping this genre alive on social media for starters. And like I said, all their uh, groups are drama free. They're all very, very much, uh, you know, everybody interacts properly. There's no lewd or, uh, you know, inappropriate comments in regard to that. There's no bashing of other group members. And, uh, you know, that's what I like about these peplum groups that these two guys uh, put together because of the fact that we can go and explore and, you know, relive this fantastic uh, moment and genre of movie history without having any worries as sidebars. And that's what I like. I wish every group was like that on Facebook and on social media because we really want to go there and do a little research or a Take a stroll down memory lane and recollect rec- recollect as to what's going, you know, what happened with this particular picture, how we saw it the first time, and how it still resonates to this day, and how, you know, the sword and sandal genre is to uh, also educate people about the real-life history of the territory that it covered. Well, most certainly so. A lot of these old uh, stories, uh, uh, we no longer have bards uh, with harps, you know, telling tales around uh, campfires. We have screens, you know, now the, uh, mm-hmm. 3D, uh, but screens at home, screens uh, in the theater. And through these screens, we're transported to uh, uh, times past and to times that never were and to times that may uh, someday be. But it's a very magical experience. And these films, as you say... Yeah. Uh, open up the the history to an era that might otherwise be forgotten. And that's exactly what uh, these groups entail. Nick and Steve don't want fans of this particular sword and sandal genre to forget about what made this part of motion picture history so special. And we were at least privileged to catch some of these movies on the silver screen when, you know, South Africa, you remember the old days. We saw a lot of them on television in the old black and white sets that we had. We didn't have color back then. We didn't have remotes. We had to turn the channel manually, if you remember. 
I remember. Move the antenna around to make sure you got reception. Move the rabbit ears around so we don't see ghosts. <laughs> yep, we don't have to worry about cable and, you know, digital reception. I mean, oh, those were the days. I'm, I'm nostalgic with a capital Ed right now in more ways than one. But uh, by all means, do visit the groups. You know, take a look at what Nick and Steve have to offer and, uh, you know, hit that join group uh, icon and I'm sure they'll accept you without a problem. And you can relive all this fantastic uh, moments, these fantastic moments in cinema in more ways than one. I mean, Spartacus, like I said, this is why I picked this picture in general because it truly is a classic with a capital C. And like I said, it's over a three-hour movie, but every minute of it just attracts your attention and grabs it from start to finish. And in turn, like I mentioned, the ending, it's one of the saddest endings I've ever experienced in watching a couple of movies, I, re- I recall. So, that, that was very, very well done and very touching. And we've come to the end of our journey for today, but uh, fortunately, yes. uh, we uh, uh, are cousins. We know each other, so uh, our conversation never ceases, and I'm glad we get a chance right. to share time uh, together uh, here on Voice of Olympus. So uh, until next Absolutely. time, thank you very much, Cuz, and uh, I will take a short music break, and then we'll be back with Tim S. Yeah, I love you, I love you, Kalinista. Take care, Salafa. Good night. Good night.
Welcome back to Voice of Olympus. And now we are entering the fourth quarter of our show. I'm greatly honored to announce the return of Tim Espy of Level 1 Games and his guest, Zach McCaddy. Greetings and welcome, gentlemen. How are you? Good. How are you? Uh, I'm doing incredibly awesome. I'm glad I got a chance to see you this week. We were in the area, but I didn't know if I have time to pass by, but we had enough time uh, so I can come in and buy a few games and uh, chat with you. Yeah, it's always always fun seeing you and saying hello. So, Zach, you are joining us uh, fresh today. You're new. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? Sure. Uh, I'm Zach McAtee. I, uh, I am a writer of sorts. I, I work right now as an admin in engineering. 
I like RPGs, board games, video games, reading. I met Tim through level one just like you did, and uh, we uh-huh. met bonded over board games, and now we uh, we occasionally do RPGs together. It's uh, It's been a very fruitful and fun friendship, and I've heard nothing but glowing things about you, so I'm honored to meet you as well. Thank you. I'm greatly honored. I've heard great things about uh, you, too. Um, I guess uh, since you guys know each other, uh, would you guys like to interview each other and uh, share information on all the wonderful things you're doing at Level 1 Games, or would you like me to ask questions? Uh, you, you can ask well, me questions. Can. I already know a bunch about them, so, so if you want to learn some stuff, I'm fine with that. Okay, fantastic. Uh, so I guess what we'll do is I'll address Tim first, and then I'll address uh, Zach. So if I ask a question after Tim's finished, Zach, uh, it's it's your turn. Uh, how does that sound? Sounds great. Sounds great. In future shows, we'll work out a rhythm, and it'll all work out. <laughs> but this is our beginning. Uh, so you guys met at Level 1 Games, and uh, you formed a friendship, and right now you're doing uh, RPGs together. So why don't we start there? Uh, tell us about these RPGs that you're doing together, and we'll start with Tim. Uh, so the, the few RPGs that we did were um, were little one-shots of, uh, like, horror-themed one-shots. We did one um, around Halloween, and then we did another one around Christmas, I believe, where uh, Zach, Zach is the, the DM or game master, and uh, he usually comes to us, you know, a couple weeks, ahead of time and uh the first time he had us write down a bunch of our fears and uh he kind of based a, a whole story a whole original story basically around around our fears and stuff and that was awesome one of the first one of the first times that we i mean we were friends and we hung out you know well before that but that was you know the the, the kind of defining moment for me if you will oh that is incredible uh zach would you care to elaborate yeah. a little bit more? What made you choose uh, Fears, and what was that adventure like? I've always heard that the best writers put themselves in the stories they create, and I've always looked at RPGs as nothing more than collaborative storytelling. I feel Me like too. people are at their best when they're fighting against something that truly challenges them, and the best way to do that is to understand what actually scares them and might make them consider how fearful it would be to be in that actual situation. So the system we ran is a game called Dread, and the idea is uh, instead of dice, you set up a Jenga tower. Every time someone takes an action where there's a chance of failure, they, uh, they pull an X amount of blocks from the Jenga tower as determined by the GM. If the tower uh-huh. collapses when you're pulling, you die. That's, you're out of the story. So it's a very quick, very lethal system, and I, I like to cater it to the players, so that's why I ask the list of fears. I try and play to people's senses. So if someone mentions they, they don't like unclean things, I'll mention smells, I'll mention the way maybe if they step on something, the way it feels underneath of their shoes. It, it's good to get them involved psychologically, I think. Oh, I, I agree with you, and that sounds ingenious. That is awesome. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, you guys had uh, a couple of adventures together. You ran them at the store, and now this is something that you're you're going to be doing uh, regularly in partnership. 
Um, that's the plan. That's I the know plan. that he's working on um, on uh, a special one. I forget the name uh, of it, but uh, it, it's where uh, instead of people, you are you are little dogs or big dogs, I guess, depending on who you choose. Uh, then Zach would be able to explain that a little bit more because I know that I know the bare minimum, and I kind of want to keep it that way. So it's a surprise for me. <laughs> Years ago, I reviewed an independent game called Kill Puppies for Satan. Uh, so, <laughs> I, I don't know if this is related to that at all, but I remember that the, the title uh, was just so interesting. So when uh, they offered me a, a reviewer's copy, I said, yeah, definitely, and then I uh, wrote the review. So, Zach, what is this game about? Uh, well, the... the system is a 5e modification called uh, Dungeons and Doggies. There was a Kickstarter a few months ago to get very detailed miniatures of various breeds of dogs as the typical classes in D&D. And then as a bonus, they included a PDF of rules to play as intelligent dogs, a a mini-module adventure. So I'm using that as the basis to build a country and develop that with the idea that uh, they're all playing intelligent dogs in a country where that's a kind of new thing and people aren't sure how they feel about it yet. <laughs> that would be very interesting uh, if that happened. Uh, and that sounds like an exciting uh, and in- intriguing uh, game. Uh, aside from role-playing games, uh, are you guys cooperating in any, because uh, you incorporated Jenga into your role-playing game. Are you uh, doing any other adaptations of uh, board games or other games and adding role-playing elements to them? Well, uh, one of the specialties that I run is actually a homebrew system, a collaborative group online made to turn the Pokemon video game into a tabletop RPG. So I've been running that for about, I think, six years now, five, six years. I've run two campaigns that both lasted for two and a half or more years, uh, one with only two players and one with up to ten at a time. Uh, but I, I like to try and it's like that nostalgia hit that everybody wants. So it's something that people can relate to from their childhood and then you get to explore it in a new facet, a new way. Develop the world beyond what you see in the pixel, you know? Right. That sounds intriguing. Um, I've always, uh, when I used to DM uh, for like for fun at home, now I do it uh, uh, to support literacy in uh, um, libraries and other institutions on occasion and after school programs and uh, so forth. Uh, but when I role play for fun, I like incorporating, uh, you know, whatever video games, board games, and you know, uh, this way people can leave what we're doing at the table and adventure and then come back with uh, stories. Uh, so uh, uh, some of the role-playing games made that very easy, like the Forgotten Realms with the Dungeon Dragons, because uh, there were video games and there were uh, there are now at least uh, board games. So it, it was relatively painless uh, and smooth to incorporate all these elements together. That sounds pretty neat. That sounds pretty neat. Yeah, uh, especially with video game enthusiasts, because uh, uh, video games, for all the amazing things they allow you to do, are quite limited. Whereas in role-playing games, you have endless choices. You can do any, you know, literally anything. Uh, whereas a game, you can do a lot of things, but you can't do everything and anything you think of. Yeah, I, I like the idea of basing an, an RPG off of a video game, because... You know, you can. The video game is supplemental. You could say, oh, in in the tabletop version, you could say, oh, I'm 
exploring this region, but in the video game you can go actually explore the region and get a little bit more detail and they bring it, bring right. that knowledge back to the table. And if you if you have a difficult time incorporating them together, uh, you can make one of them like a visionary experience. That what you get in the game, you change it a little bit, and they dreamed it or yeah, you know, they had a vision because you know, they took some psychotropic substance or you know they went to a dream temple of uh, Asclepius or, or something. Uh, and this way, they get like an alternate version of the events. You can incorporate the television seasons the same way, and uh, uh, this way they have some basic knowledge. Uh, uh, beyond uh, the tabletop game, but you don't have to be bound by the reality of a TV show or a video game. Right. Have uh, people been asking uh, for superhero role-playing? Because that, that, that comes in and out of fashion and becomes popular and not popular. Uh, I don't know what it's doing now. Um, from my, my, my gathering of the people that come to the store, it, they seem to be, they seem to like classic style, um, you know, D&D, 5e style. Um, but it could be because that's what the, the DMs run. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I, I, I haven't really had anybody ask uh, about anything like that specifically, but I've had other people ask about other D&D style um, RPGs, but no, nothing, nothing too, you know, doesn't stray too far from that. I would be interested because I would love to do. I like post-apocalyptic style stuff, so I would yes. love to run some sort of post-apocalyptic style RPG. I think that would be great. There are plenty of those, uh, starting with Gamma World. I think that was one of the first of the uh, post-apocalyptic RPGs uh, to come out. Uh, Zach, do you run any other uh, genres? Uh, um, aside from like uh, uh, Pokemon, um, dogs evolved, and uh, like D and D fantasy type of thing, or have you also delved into other uh, areas with your RPG? I've played a lot more different ones than I have run. I've gone to um, Origins, the, the convention over in Columbus, okay. Ohio, and tried a whole bunch of uh, like uh, Lovecraft, like Call of Cthulhu, All Flesh Must Be Eaten, all sorts of various good little module one-shots. I've done homeroom systems. My group back home, funnily enough, they used to be really big into the superhero stuff. Mutants and Masterminds. Yes, yes, yes. I remember that. Very nice wide palette, but for running things, I'm Pokemon, uh, Dread, Ten Candles, um, trying to learn a couple other systems, such as uh, Mouse Guard. I'm very big on... uh, I grew up with, like, the Red Wall books, by Brian Jacques, okay. which were humanized heroic animals. Yes. And so um, watership down style type of thing. Very, very intense books. And uh, so one of the systems I run is called the Warren. And the idea is you're basically just normal rabbits in the real world. So you can only okay. do what rabbits can do. And the fun really comes from the idea of trying to describe things that everyone knows and recognizes, a car, a house in ways that surprises them and makes them question what it is because a rabbit wouldn't understand what it is. That's, that's, uh, again, very intriguing and very different. You're very creative and, uh, uh, willing to take risks. And that's awesome. Uh, to have in a dungeon master. Thank you. Um, how about like a lot of people are into a uh, game of Thrones. Uh, um, a lot of people are into, uh, the walking dead, 
uh, and uh, those uh, shows have made their way into uh, video games. Um, is there any uh, interest the folk have been expressing in continuing their adventures in these uh, type of worlds? One is a uh, zombie apocalypse. The other is uh, uh, medieval fantasy with a lot of uh, intrigue in it. Yeah, that, that almost ties in with my post-apocalyptic, you know, like I love like any of the, the Romero movies, um, the Romero yeah. zombie movies. Um, so, I, I, I was, again, I would love to run something something like that and tie all that in together. Um, but, uh, I, I mean, if we do it, the crowd will come. That's it's almost guaranteed. The same way we started with D&D. We started with, you know, four people, and now the table is almost too big. Um, so I guarantee if we, if we started uh, gauging interest, I'm sure there would be a bunch of people that would be interested. Oh, that would be incredibly awesome because people like to dress up in uh, costumes uh, too uh, from these shows. So uh, that would make for an interesting uh, type of experience. You know, people dressing up like uh, uh, zombie hunters or post-apocalyptic mutants or whatever you decide to include in your world. Are you thinking of creating your own world or uh, something uh, based on your favorite video game or um, something adapted from a, a series of books or uh, movies or shows? Um, my favorite post-apocalyptic um, world, I guess, is uh, the, the Escape From series, Escape from New York, Escape from L.A. Oh, um, I love those. That, yeah, that or, or the Fallout series with in video games. Um, Yeah, those are those are awesome, and uh, I can't wait to get a PlayStation 4 so I could uh, uh, try uh, the Fallout, as you recommended several times. And how about yeah, you, man, Zach? I think that I think that'll be fun. I've uh, I've never run a post-apocalyptic scenario in uh, in like standard, really far-gone universe. But I, I've done a few that are immediately after a disaster strike. So I, I did um, a game called Ten Candles, which I think Tim talked about on here before. Yeah. It's a very atmospheric game. The idea is you play in pitch blackness with ten tea light candles on the table as the only source of light. Every okay. time someone fails a roll, one of the candles goes out. When all the candles go out, everyone dies. So you go into it with that sense of fatalism. And the idea is to tell the best story you can as opposed to trying to win or increase your character's abilities. You just want to give them a good story. But I, I ran one that was immediately after the stars all went out across the world. Communication has gone down globally. And people started coming down with a sickness that caused them to scratch themselves uncontrollably until all their flesh, flesh would come off. And they would go around and scratch other people and pass it on and so on and so forth. So I, I, I like the immediacy of the disaster, watching people try to cope with the end coming towards them. So no no eating brains, scratching uh, all the flesh off. That, that is yeah. uh, very yeah. different, too. Um, have either of you thought of developing your own uh, system and and selling it? I know me personally. I'm not creative enough to do something like that. That's what I would be Zach for. Um, he kind of, okay. fortunately or unfortunately, gets stuck 
how, if you want the word you want to use, to, to be the, the GM because he is one of the most creative in the group. Um, so I, I, that, that's a burden that, that, that Zach would have to carry. <laughs> I wind up being the GM mostly because I'm willing to, you know, learn the rules and do all the work. <laughs> but I, I like being the GM. I've actually played like three times uh, since the dawn of the hobby as a, as a character. Uh, but with GM, you get to play all the characters. Everybody that's encountered that is the player uh, is, is the GM. Exactly. And that's one of the cool things about it is you're not just tied down to one ideology, one character, one voice. You get right. to supply the entire backdrop for everyone else to bring out their best. And I have uh, one more question, and then our, our, uh, I'm going to ask you guys for some announcements because we're almost at the end of today's journey. We definitely have to continue this uh, journey. Uh, so, Zach, you're welcome back whenever you have time. Um, and uh, we go just talk to Tim, and he'll let me know, okay? That sounds great. Thank you very much. Now, one of the things I used to do when I used to more actively game, when it wasn't gaming uh, as a teaching tool, um, is I used to incorporate characters from Saturday Night Live, from like all sorts of shows, as if they were actors that I was casting, and I'd learn to do their voices, and uh, it added an extra dimension. It was like Easter eggs, I guess. And the people who had seen those shows or uh, were familiar with the characters, it was like an extra, you know, like their eyes used to light up when they figured out uh, who they were dealing with. Uh, do you guys do that at all? Adapt characters from uh, shows, movies, video games, books, or uh, any place else in creating, in fleshing out your campaign and uh, creating your characters or running a character? I always love to find inspiration in the books that I read, in some movies, something that I know that the players will know, that it's not like, oh, I found this obscure book nobody's ever heard of. So just like you were saying, I try and find something to recognize and tweak it a little bit, maybe put it yeah. in a direction that is the opposite of the show or makes them think about it a different way. Maybe someone who looks purely heroic is suddenly now you're seeing the TV side of them that you didn't know was there, and you don't know if you should side with them, that kind of thing. But I, I favor making my own characters with funny voices like, like you do as well, because it's, it's half the fun of being the DM. Yes, uh, it is. My favorite was I had, uh, in, in the rabbit game, I had a blue jay named Crackabee. And <laughs> the idea I had up for him was that he couldn't count past one. And so they would try and barter favors from him. And he, he kept insisting, okay, well, you need to give me one one acorn. I need one 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 acorn. <laughs> and, and it was just this fun little tweak that, like, everyone was dying any time they had to talk to him. Yes, that, that, that is incredibly uh, um, awesome uh, when you can do that and the players get into it. Uh, how about you, Tim? Do you base your characters or the non-player characters you create on anything that actually exists and tweaked or adapted into your uh, campaign? The, the characters that I like to play, I like to be me because I like to put myself into the, the, the place where we are. And, and yeah. that helps me, you know, kind of role play it a little bit more into stuff that I would actually do. Um, and it, it just it helps my my head canon and 
I can place myself in this situation. I can see myself walking up to this dilapidated building or dealing with this NPC or dealing with this, you know, this certain scenario because I can see myself doing it and how I would handle it. That is awesome. And the few times I've played, uh, my character was always a variation of a, of a theme, yeah, which, which is basically putting myself uh, sometimes in a more idealized uh, version of myself, sometimes a more shadowy version of myself, but still myself. So um, I, have, I have something in common with both of you in terms of uh, role playing. Now, um, we have a couple more minutes. What's coming up soon at Level 1 Games that folks should know about? Um, level one, we've been doing, um, we do our D&D events on Sundays. We run two campaigns, uh, from one to five, and then another one from six until ten. Uh, the one from six until ten, since we were talking about costumes, is, uh, they're doing, like, it's kind of drop in, drop out, where, uh, everybody is part of a circus. So they, they all dress up and, and, uh, and play their roles, you know, and, uh, Let's Sundays, and then uh, Fridays and Saturdays we do our, our magic tournaments, and Saturdays we do our Pokemon tournaments, and uh, on Mondays we do our video game tournaments. So we're doing stuff almost every day, and we have people here all the time playing magic or Pokemon or, or coming to hang out. Yes, whenever I go there, it's busy and people look very uh, uh, engaged in what they're doing and having a great time, and your inventory has uh, also... Uh, expanded to accommodate all these folks and their interests. That's awesome. I love looking around your store. Yes, thank you. And, Zach, how about you? What's the new and exciting or coming up soon uh, uh, in terms of what you're doing creatively? Well, as Tim mentioned before, I'm hoping to put the finishing touches on the uh, the dog campaign. I've also been working on a Pokemon campaign set in a, a world of my own making based off of Norway and Norse mythology, which is my favorite Very cool. type of mythos and history to read about. Uh, and then additionally, we're always trying to get more people in for board games. I have uh, about 70 board games I keep in my car. I come every week, and we meet some new people. We get people who come over and see games that they've never seen before, and they want to join. So it's, it's always nice to welcome new people to the hobby. That is incredibly awesome. I'm glad that you're doing it. We have 90 seconds. Thank you so very much uh, for uh, joining us today, Zach. And, of course, it's always a pleasure uh, to talk to you, Tim. And uh, I look forward to seeing you soon. And uh, I will be having a video show uh, that I'm planning very soon, uh, at least by the end of the summer. So I'll have to come there and film in Level 1 Games. So we will plan that as well. Yeah, that would, that would be awesome. I'd be, yeah, I'm totally about that. Okay, until next time, this is Hercules with Tim and Zach wishing you joyous journeys and awesome adventures. And now just Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank so you much. for having us. Thank you. for listening to the Spiritual Unity Radio Network. Join us seven nights a week for exciting programming covering a variety of expressions of faith. And remember, all manifestations of the divine are equally valid.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.